0: Hello and welcome to episode two hundred and fifty-three of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as
1: always with Jason Urbenowitz. How's it going, Ian? It's going well, Jason. How are you, sir? I'm good. You you sound to be doing well. Yeah, I'm I'm doing okay.
0: If you listened to last week's episode, I talked about my father's passing, and it's been a week. But I do want to say thank you to everyone that listened to the episode last week and either sent their condolences or said that they enjoyed listening to what I said. But most of all, I want to thank the people that wrote in and said that they listened to the podcast and it brought up memories, either memories of, of their parents or things that they as parents want to accomplish with their children. And That to me, was it was very nice to read and And helpful in the moment. So I want to thank everyone who sent those along. On that note, I think this is just a cool thing to do in general. So I want to start this as kind of a new thing that we do. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do, listener. Email us at podcast at fr24.com. Either write it or speak it in a voice memo and email it to us. And Send us your stories of how people have influenced your passion for aviation, whether they inspired you to pursue a career in aviation or just whoever helped you become an av geek. I think that's a really cool story that a lot of people have, especially people listening to this podcast. And we'd love to hear it. And we'll share some of those answers in the next
1: few episodes. So, so email That'd us podcast great. at fr24.com. We love getting positive emails and voice memos Mm -hmm. and whatever of that sort. Because every now and then we get some emails that are are not positive and basically just tell (laughs) us to to go take a hike. Me specifically, usually if we're being honest. Usually you specifically, yes. Usually me specifically, but this would be a nice change. So please do. We do read every email eventually that comes to us. Yes, absolutely.
0: Even if we don't respond, it does get read. Even and if to screws to, up the email inbox and we don't see any of them for six months, <laughs> we will get to yeah, the well, it's working now. I promise. It's working now. <laughs> hey, speaking of fan mail, this is a thing that I wasn't going to talk about, we weren't going to address, because I didn't really have anything to add. And Then I got curious, and I started thinking about it, and it became a much more interesting
1: story. I am referring, of course, to Taylor Swift. Ah, but of course, there is no industry not impacted by Taylor Swift. I mean- You cannot
0: escape the orbit of Taylor Swift. And The reason we're talking about Taylor Swift is because she is currently in a relationship with one of the players on the Kansas City Chiefs, in case you didn't know. and If you're listening to this podcast, it's probably a 50-50 shot that you know who Taylor Swift is, let alone who she's dating. So I'll give that to you. I have been keeping up on that information thanks to my wife and daughter. But this relates more to the airplanes. So here's the deal, and we'll get through this part really quick because this is not the most interesting part. She's dating someone on the like Kansas City Chiefs. They're playing in the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is in Las Vegas on February 11th. Kickoff is at 3:30 Pacific time on the 11th of February. Taylor Swift is performing a concert in Tokyo, Japan, on February 10th. The concert starts in the evening, and just for the sake of argument and timing and everything, we'll say that she's done with everything at the concert. Concert's over. She's you know gotten dressed in street clothes, all that good fun stuff by midnight in Tokyo on the beginning of the 11th. So that's 8 a.m. in Las Vegas, still on the the 10th. Of February, so she's got plenty of time. There was she's going to have to time travel. News articles, so many, and she will. There are so many news articles that have been written. Can Taylor Swift make it from Tokyo to Las Vegas? Yes, it's literally, easily how time done. Works. That's just how time works. She will cross the international dateline. It'll be just like we talk about on the first of January every year, where people depart one day and arrive back in the next day. It's not a problem. You don't even need to be Taylor Swift to have time travel technology. No. Anybody could get on a commercial flight to Tokyo. If there were nonstop commercial flights from Tokyo to Las Vegas, you could do this. But that's not where the interesting things comes in. Because the more I thought about this, the more interesting it became to me, not from a, will she be able to make it there? But how will she make it there from an aviation perspective? Because the flying part is easy. She's got multiple private aircraft at her disposal. She's got enough money. She could rent a fleet of private aircraft. That's not the hard part. The hard part comes in what money can't buy. Here's the thing about Vegas. It's got two airports with customs and border protections. So that becomes something that is because a limiting factor. Yeah,
1: well, what's it's the a other constraint? One? You have Harry Reid, the the, you airport. have Harry Reid
0: and you have Henderson. Henderson Executive uh, has okay. customs and border protection. Processing facility. So you can land internationally from there. The Teeterboro of Vegas. The Teeterboro right. of Vegas. Yes. I believe that's actually what they have like a flower sign <laughs> in the side of the Teeterboro. That's a niche joke. But here's the thing talking to folks who work in aviation in Vegas who know about these things, there are no slots and there are no
1: parking spaces. Even for Taylor Swift, they're going to say that there's no parking, you got to go elsewhere. I mean, anybody who is everybody, or everybody who is anybody,
0: pick the direction you want to go with that one, wants to go to the Super Bowl every year. And so they have policies, procedures, and from the people that I've talked to, it doesn't really matter. I mean, there are billionaires coming from all over the world, and it seems like that's a very limiting factor. There are roughly 700 spots for private aircraft between Las Vegas and Henderson,
1: and they're all full. Who wants to be the hero? Who could be the hero? into the headlines to say, I gave up my private jet parking spot (laughs) in Vegas for Taylor Swift, you're welcome. That would be just like a coup of a PR win for anyone. The most evil, sadistic person in the world could do that. And we'd all be like, yeah, all right, maybe this person's not so bad.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's an option. Here's what I think will happen. And I'm saying this just to put this out there in case I'm right, and also in case I'm wrong, and we can talk about one way or the other. I think what'll happen is I think she'll fly to Los Angeles.
1: Okay. And then Because she's
0: got plenty of time. And then it's an easy hop on any
1: manner of mode of transportation from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. I even one of the many dozens of commercial flights a day. Wouldn't that be something? I
0: mean, can you imagine Taylor Swift being on Southwest?
1: No, Coming I can't. In from, from I, I honestly from cannot yeah. to Vegas. Hey, I, don't, I, I,
0: Southwest does those like they have a, a musician on the plane and they play it on, you know during the flight.
1: That would be fun. Sure. <laughs> I mean, maybe they're not able to get space on one of those commercial flights. I mean, it is a flight going to the Super Bowl on, on that day, so maybe there isn't any availability. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm sure they'll work it out.
0: They'll scrounge up a basic economy ticket. I'm sure that Taylor Swift will be there. But I thought the most ridiculous thing was the breathless. Will she be able to make it in time? Yes, of course.
1: That's how time works. If she were going the other way, no. Then we would have an issue. Not an option. Yes. Yeah. Unless she really does have time travel technology. But if anyone has it, it's Taylor Swift. So this and the follow up to
0: see whether or not, you know, to figure out how this actually went down. I hope those are the only two times that we ever talk about Taylor Swift on this podcast, and I'm going to leave it there. I got so excited about Taylor Swift that I forgot to mention that we have John Ostrower on the show this week. We will be talking about Boeing. (laughs) No, John's just going to, it's more Taylor Swift. Okay. (laughs) We're going to go deep into Boeing's culture. We're going to go deep into what the future at Boeing might look like. So It's Wednesday, January 31st. We spoke with John yesterday on Tuesday. Before Boeing issued its earnings today, this morning, we talked with John and he gave us a little bit of a look into the crystal ball, but he also gave us some questions to look out for in the earnings today. So, after we talk with John, after we put that into the podcast, we'll come back and we'll talk about the answers to those questions in just a little bit as well. So, that's a little bit later in the show, but there's other than Boeing news this week. And for that, I turn it over to Jason, who has been combing through the recently released docket by the NTSB regarding the American Airlines and Delta Airlines runway incursion that happened at the beginning of 2023. I didn't expect to be talking about Turtles, but we've already covered Taylor Swift, so let's get to
1: it. So why not? Yeah, this was the docket being released by the NTSB for the incident that occurred January 13th, 2023. So a little over a year ago, seems like a lot longer ago than that. January 1st, 2024 was six months ago. I think so. Oh. <laughs> time, time is weird this year. But this was the American 777 versus Delta 737-900 incident at JFK, where the Delta 73 was on its takeoff roll on runway 40 left, and the wayward American 777 crossed the runway in front of them after confusing the route that they were supposed to take. They were headed to the wrong runway. Very interesting transcripts released by the NTSB. They talked to everyone, the pilots on board, the American flight, the Delta flight, and the air traffic controllers, which we'll talk about in a minute. This incident was noteworthy because it was really the bubbling over of the acknowledgement that something is not right post-COVID or during COVID, that there are a lot of very close calls, uh, runway incursions, things not going the way they're supposed to on the ground and in the air around airports. And the NTSB launched a very full investigation into this incident. What has been revealed is that the pilots of the American Triple Seven were very distracted by everything going on pre-departure. Obviously they have a lot of procedures, policies that they have to take care of before they're able to get to the runway and depart. And in this case there was a bit of an extra addition in that they needed their cargo closeout that which hadn't come in by the time they were already taxiing out to the runway. So it was even more distracting than usual on board the aircraft and unfortunately the pilots operating the, the aircraft taxiing on the ground at JFK which is admittedly a very confusing airport especially in the area around where the incident occurred which is called a hot spot there's a lot of converging taxiways a lot of runways intersecting all in one place and they made a wrong turn they thought they were taxiing out to runway 31 left but really they needed to be turning right to go to runway four left. A lot of procedures that are in place to prevent this incident, they were working and they were there and they were operating as intended. It was just the timing of it turned out to be exactly so that it was almost a disaster. A few airports in the US, not a lot, I think it's less than two dozen, have a runway protection system where there's some sort of algorithm that detects if there is an aircraft approaching the runway or on its takeoff roll, it will illuminate lights along the runway, red lights, basically a stoplight saying, don't enter this runway, it's active, something else is going on. It turns out that just the moment that the American 777 nosed over the hold short line, those lights activated. and By the time those lights activated, they were already over the viewpoint of the first two, possibly three, Illuminated lights on the runway. So by the time they actually saw it, they were already well over the hold short line and inching towards the runway. And the ASDEX system, which is basically the monitoring system for the aircraft on the ground that uses GPS locations and, and possibly MLAT, that, the, that has been apparently broken at JFK for a long time as of the time of this incident. that We'll get to that in some of the transcripts from the air traffic controllers. But what happened was that the ground monitoring system alerted the air traffic controllers that, hey, this Delta aircraft is on the move, and there's something else on the runway. And thankfully, air traffic controllers in the control cab got that warning, issued the alert to Delta to cancel takeoff, and so they did. They came to a stop, and American continued its rollout, or taxiing across the runway. And thankfully, nobody was injured. The American flight continued onto to London, as we know, because the flight data recorder was intact, but the cockpit voice recorder, which only records two hours of audio, was overwritten. At the time, they didn't know they did anything wrong. They had communicated with the air traffic controllers in the JFK tower, and it wasn't really clear what happened, and they continued on. But if you have the time... I'd recommend reading through the many, many pages of transcripts and human interactions and technology reports and all that because there's a lot to learn from that, especially one of the air traffic controllers. The transcript is a a bit spicy. It's colorful. He had a lot of things to say. So there's no audio recording. They're very clear to say that Although the interviews are recorded for audio, those recordings are strictly for the NTSB and the transcription. And once it is transcripted, those audio recordings are destroyed. So it is only a transcript of it. But there's some interesting bits from what they call the event scenario, getting into the ASDEX system and the runway safety lights. That There's some algorithms at play that it will not trigger a warning until the aircraft's on the move has a velocity of 29.9 knots coupled with an acceleration of 1.20 meters per second, or the aircraft reaches a velocity of 49.9 knots. And the Delta 73 was operating at quite a bit higher speeds than that. I think they got up to over 94, crossing into 97 knots. So there's some interesting technological aspects to look at as should this be tuned? Should those thresholds be a little bit lower to provide more of a warning for any aircraft that finds its way onto the runway? But getting back to that one air traffic controller, he had a lot to say. I think a lot of it was warranted that there's some deferred maintenance going on, that this doesn't work, that doesn't work. He hadn't had enough sleep, and not assigning blame. The NTSB doesn't do that. But at some point, he called pilots donkeys, that there's been, in his opinion, since COVID, there's been- Not donkeys as in like the nickname for Dunkin' Donuts, donkeys, well, donkeys. as in the
0: animal.
1: Yes. I just I want, want to make at, that one clear. At JFK, since COVID, cannot be trusted with more complex clearances than would have been norm in the past. So instead of exit the ramp, turn left kilo, right kilo, echo, cross three, one left, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, he's only able to provide them with three clearances at a time. Because beyond that, pilots these days apparently are forgetting instructions and making wrong movements, just like we had with this American 777, or jumping frequencies before they're given the authorization to jump from the ground radio frequency to the tower frequency. He had a lot to say. And at some point, they started talking about, if you've been around a while in New York in the app Geek scene here. You know about the turtles on the runway. Every spring on 3-1 left, 13 right, the turtles come out because this is it. JFK is a wildlife preserve. Around it is a wildlife preserve. And sometimes turtles end up on the runway. And, and it is nice to know he's an environmentalist and he has no issues with the turtles.
0: No, he likes the turtles, I believe, is, yeah. is how we end up in this particular place. But yeah, I thought the transcript of the interviews with the air traffic controller, as well as with the pilots, because we don't have the cockpit voice recorder, unfortunately. And This is something that we talked about in the mid-February episode from last year, how having the cockpit voice recorder on this and other recent high-profile incidents and accidents would be super helpful. But Good to see that that seems to be moving in the right direction. But the transcripts are really interesting. I think setting aside the controller's colorful commentary, it seems to me that he was waiting for someone to come and talk to him. You know, it was just very like I'm making a mental note of all of the things that I would like to discuss as part of this investigation. And when the NTSB calls me, I'm going to be ready. And the pilots. The transcripts of their interviews with the NTSB were also interesting in that there was a lot of insight into that hurry up and wait and then hurry up again atmosphere of an international departure. I've witnessed this firsthand where everybody's ready to go and then there's one thing that's missing. or they need to offload bags or they need to load bags or they're holding the plane you know everyone's ready to go on the plane but then the airline decides to hold the plane because there's another connecting flight and a dozen passengers off that connecting flight need to make this flight and so there's all of those things and then we need to go okay we need to go because we're going to run out hours or we're going to lose our slot time or this or that and that came across i mean you don't get to hear their voices but it came across in their words and i thought that was a very interesting and and they didn't really touch on that generally, it was more this specific context. But I think that was one thing with an eye to what they were saying, providing a little bit of context there.
1: Yeah. And they were also very candid. And remember, the context here is important because this is after they initially did not want had objections to the NTSB investigation and that they did not want it to be audio recorded. So they initially did not have an interview. It took a few days, longer than the NTSB probably would have liked to get those interviews with the crew. But reading the transcripts, they were very honest, very accepting that, yeah, somebody in the incident at the time, I knew somebody screwed up, but I didn't know it was me. Right. So It was just a really interesting read and I'm glad everything worked out and they were able to get those interviews because it's important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the structure of the NTSB
0: investigation, I didn't know I'd be going this direction today, but the, the thing that bothers me about the movie Sully is that uh, yes. like the second half of the movie or second two-thirds of the movie is a made-up adversarial process because it, it makes for good film where you have you know the good guy and then you have the big bad government agency trying to you know make them out to be the bad guys and the NTSB process is not that and of course if you're listening to this podcast regularly you know that that we talk about this anytime something happens but the NTSB process is only designed and is is specifically designed to understand what happened and why it happened And how can it be
1: prevented from ever happening again? Yep. That's a great point. And they make very clear when they start these interviews that that's exactly what they're there to do. I don't have the text in front of me right now, but they very clearly say, I am a member of the NTSB investigative body. We are not a prosecutory body. We don't have any authority to do anything like that. We are just here to make flying safer.
0: And that is what they're doing. And on the NTSB front, we are expecting the preliminary report into Alaska 1282 later this week or early next. Preliminary reports are issued roughly 30 days post accident, and we're coming up on 30 days. So we should be expecting that later this week or early next. So I'm sure that we will be talking about that on next week's episode. And as we transition from the NTSB and their investigations into Alaska and what has happened there. We're going to pause and come back with John Ostrower in just a moment, talk a little bit about what's happening with Boeing, at Boeing, outside of Boeing that is influencing Boeing, what's going on at the FAA, and then where's Boeing headed. We'll be back in just a moment with John Ostrower. Stay with us. Welcome back. We are now joined by the air currents, John Ostrower, who we often call on when we need to gaze into the crystal ball of Boeing. There's been no shortage of Boeing events and news in the past 25 days. and We've done our best to cover those and non-Boeing news and we've done our best to cover that. So, John, thank you so much for joining us once again. Always, always, always
2: a pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks.
0: So we started the month and it was this month, well, it'll be last month by the time the podcast comes out on Friday, but we're recording on Tuesday, January 30th, and that's going to be important for those that are listening this week and we'll get to that in a moment. But we started this month with Boeing kind of on the upswing. We had previewed the first delivery of the 737 MAX to a Chinese airline in almost four years. 2019 was the last time China Southern had taken contractual delivery. They were waiting to bring the airplane home and that finally happened near the end of this month. But in the intervening 30 days, an Alaska Airlines 737-9 Max lost a mid cabin exit door plug. The 737 -9 was grounded for those with the same configuration as Boeing and the FAA worked on an inspection process that still to me seems to boil down to are the bolts there and are they as tight as they should be? John feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, and we sit today with the aircraft returned to service by all 5 airlines that operate the aircraft with the mid-cabin exit door plug, but again getting the particular aircraft that are affected by this inspection regime seems to be the beginning, not the end of the uphill climb once again for Boeing. They are facing drastically increased regulatory scrutiny even beyond what they were already facing following the 2018 and 2019 crashes of the 737 MAX and the subsequent 21-month grounding. So, We turn now to John to help fill us in on what is a simply phrased question with no simple answer whatsoever. John Ostrauer, what does Boeing's future look like?
2: Well, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head, which is that 2023 ended on a high note. and I think one of the things that the universe of those that have a stake in Boeing's success and those that follow them closely have sort of reached the conclusion at this point that there's an important difference between the weather and the climate. And the weather at Boeing was really good at the end of 2023. They had record orders, 787 had like 300 new orders. That's incredible, 20 years since launch. It's a record number that they, for a one-year period, China was getting back going again on the Max 8s, and by all accounts that you know, Max 7 was wrapping up and getting ready to go to Southwest. I think the thing that this whole situation has caused everyone to do rightly is step back from what is the day-to-day or week-to-week improvement in the, in the news coming out of Boeing and look at the larger span of history of the company. And I think that's something that we've always done at The Air Current, something that I've had the benefit of being on the front lines of since I started reporting on Boeing in 2007, which has allowed me to sort of look at where we are today and say the situation in the factory that has apparently evidently led to what happened on Alaska 1282 was fundamentally not just a discrete single one-off problem – but the culmination of a lot of years of compounding strategic missteps that have ultimately frayed Boeing's ability to consistently deliver airplanes to the much of the chagrin of their of their customers, of their regulators, and the flying public. So that's where we find ourselves today. Where we go from here is a. Five hour, 75 part answer, but I'll keep it tight. <laughs> You've got 30 minutes.
0: Go. Got 30 minutes. Go.
2: <laughs> this is a company that needs to return to itself and understanding that Boeing is one of those incredible companies in the world that has really only one peer fundamentally in Airbus. But in the US, there's no one equal to it. But it's the kind of company that creates its own gravity. And what I mean by that is that there is literally an orbit of stakeholders that surround them, whether it's financial markets, whether it's its suppliers, whether it's the U.S. government, whether it's the airline customers, whether it's labor organizations, all of these different pieces surrounding Boeing, that when Boeing makes a decision, changes the nature of the orbit and the relationship it has with the stakeholders of the planets that surround it. And so those relationships have become increasingly distant and frayed over time. And at a very high level, pulling that back in and seeking to effectively reintegrate the company. I mean, again, the relationships that Boeing has are so damaged over time. And the moments of mistrust that have been created require a very different type of leadership and strategy than the one that they've had for the last 25 years. And so ultimately, what we have now is a strategy that is not producing the results that Boeing wants. And we have ample evidence to point to the fact that they're not getting what they need as a company and where they ultimately want to go.
0: We've had a similar discussion, though I don't think it's ever quite been as acute as this. In the past, we've talked about the financialization of Boeing where the culture of a great engineering company that built great things became a manufacturing company that focused on financial incentives as much as possible as a way of producing shareholder value. Certainly, a worthy goal for a company that is driven by stockholders and stakeholders, but along the way became too focused on financial incentives and then instead of being an engineering company that is financially performing well became a financial company that isn't engineering well and the problems are not just the 737-9 max we've got the max 7 and the max 10 that aren't yet certified and we also have the 777X that is not yet certified and all three aircraft are years behind schedule never mind them trying to build a new aircraft so what type of cultural change are we looking at here? I mean, is there appetite within Boeing for that, or is leadership still not quite there yet?
2: I think that's going to be the key thing going forward. Right? It's not just the acknowledgement of a problem in the factory and working on quality. It's a problem of working on culture. And I mean, who'd think that when you're sitting in July 2011, by the way, the when the Max was launched and the Max 7 came along with the overall launch of the Max later that same summer. I mean, 15 years from launch to potential entry into service for the Max 7. I mean, that's that's it's an amazing thing given the gestation for that airplane. The Max 10 came along in in 2017 and that will by some estimates may actually be close to a decade-long development. So what we're seeing is, again, the Boeing strategy, which again, as you rightly pointed out, has been one geared toward becoming a financially performing company, but not performing in terms of just healthy, but performing and optimizing for free cash flow and the return of those free cash flows to investors. And certainly at a time when in the mid-2010s, Boeing was building at incredibly high rates and the supply chain was by all accounts outwardly doing well because of that those volumes the amount of free cash flow that Boeing generated was tens and tens and billions of dollars and they gave the vast overwhelming majority of it back to investors and they didn't you know I remember writing an article when I was at the journal this is probably 2015 or 16 you know, one analyst kind of came out and said, well, maybe they should kind of hold on to some of it for a rainy day, just in case, you know, they might need it also maybe to develop a new airplane. And they were like, oh no, it'll be fine. Cause we, you know, we have all these free cash flows. We're really kind of consistently going to have that going forward. And so we'll use that in the future. Well, we saw how that went. Obviously the max happened, COVID happened. So there absolutely has been an over-optimization for that and for meeting the investor metrics, because that's executives and the executives who report to the top executives and so on down the executive line are judged on and what they're measured against. So fundamentally, I think you know Gus Kelly, who is the, he's the CEO of Aircap, which is the world's largest aircraft lesser. So he buys airplanes from Boeing and Airbus. He then rents them out to airlines. He is a person with an enormous stake in the success of both companies. His view is you just got to put the financial stuff in the backseat for a while. And that's going to require a different type of leader and a different type of leadership, given how it's already been, it being Boeing's leaders have conducted themselves in the last 20 years at the highest levels in terms of working with suppliers and trying to take margin for cost cuts and so on and so forth and whether it's new labor contracts. I mean, there are innumerable examples of trying to extract little pieces here and there from all the different stakeholders in in the ecosystem. And so all that needs to take a backseat. And I think that that's the first thing that has to happen. How you actually implement that is far more challenging, but there are absolutely demonstrable things that you have to do to begin to steer things back toward a more cohesive structure where you've got, a, at least a an emotional, spiritual connection, so to speak, cultural connection between what's going on at the very top of the company and what's going on on the factory floor.
0: I want to take a walk across the road from Boeing's current headquarters in Virginia to Washington D.C. and to talk about the FAA's refound, uh, renewed sense of regulatory teeth prowess. Teeth. That's yeah, like- I mean they grew teeth, seemingly. You know starting with 2018, 2019, and really seemingly culminating within the past month in what feels like a need to be seen doing something, those somethings seem good. But from your reporting and from your sense, is this – I mean, Boeing statements have been, we welcome this. This is a good thing. We're very happy with all of these things. We agree with the FAA. Have you – got in the sense that that's a genuine feeling? Or is this just one of those things where we have to say this, we have to knuckle down, we have to deal with this right now, but?
2: I too enjoy when my dentist gives me a root canal (laughs) because I need one, right? (laughs) You you can't kind of disagree with it at that point, but it's it's the thing that has to happen. I think one of the things that the FAA has struggled with, demonstrably, I mean, it's an absolutely measurable thing. It's two really important functions here. Number one, a lack of consistent leadership in the last five years, I mean, we had acting administrator after acting administrator after acting administrator after Steve Dickinson left, and that definitely shaped the policymaking regulatory apparatus. It was not clear who was going to be making decisions, who was setting policy, and you saw these conflicts, you saw them manifesting in things like ev veto policies and and also just the overall posture toward Boeing in terms of also in the midst of this lack of permanent leadership, new mandates from Congress on reforming the certification apparatus as they were trying to figure out how to make all of this work. And so that kind of makes it all squishy, right? You want a regulator that's bedrock, and this was not. And so combined with that, you also have an FAA that has for years and years and years predating this situation has been a political football around funding and priorities and so when members of Congress get up and say, well, you know, the FAA needs to be doing its job, it's like, well, Congress, have you been doing your job? Have you given this organization consistent, steady funding to be an actual regulator and providing the oversight that's necessary? And the answer is a resounding no. I mean, again, the news clips are ample to suggest that the FAA has been abused by Congress over, you know, a decade or longer. So where are we now? We're at a point where we finally have a permanent FAA administrator in, in Mike Whittaker, and he is not screwing around. Nor should he. You know, look. I think what you see here is when the bigger the fracture gets between Boeing and, and either the flying public or the airlines or the suppliers or regulators or government, the more the urge from the FAA is to reach deep inside of Boeing's chest and grab its heart. And I mean, it's graphic, not like I'm kind a of like colleague, ma, you know, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. But literally, they have to pull them closer than they have done before. And that embrace is going to hurt like hell because this is a company that has largely wanted to do the opposite. You know, we talked about the delegated authority, which is inherently trust-based, by the way. We talk about the, the streamlining of the original 737 MAX development, all of that, because that's where Boeing wanted things to go. They wanted it to move faster and safety was assumed and so obviously after two max crashes and now the situation with alaska yes safety is not assumed and so what you have is a regulator that is literally grabbing them saying you cannot do this anymore i mean too big to fail kind of became a cliche after the global financial crisis and whether it was the automakers or the banks and bailouts and all that and it's really important. This is not a financial problem for Boeing. Boeing has a lot of debt that they need to get off their balance sheet. They need to get their house sorted, a bunch of things financially. But fundamentally, they have orders, and it's not a demand question. They have orders for years and years and years. It's a question of Boeing, are you too big to fail? And the overwhelming answer is absolutely they're too big to fail. I mean, we talk about from a US perspective, they're too big to fail in terms of the number of jobs that it guarantees for its employees, but also the suppliers who feed it, the airlines who count on it. And we think of it as a US problem, but it's not. I mean, it is a global economic institution that if it were to be significantly diminished or literally fail as a business, it would cause incalculable damage to the way this planet operates Whether it's moving of goods and services, whether it's moving of people, tourism industry, all of these things that we have in our modern world and have counted on for the last seventy years in the jet age, so failure is not an option. I mean, I mean, how many aerospace metaphors can I throw in here? But like, you know, more. I want more. 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 Right. You know, this is a huge, huge, huge crisis for the company but also for the type of industry this country wants to have and what it's going to mean for the world. Airbus cannot build all of the airplanes for everybody. That's not a realistic outcome here. So you need a second, hopefully balanced, healthy duopoly, but it's going to take a long, long time to get there.
1: So let's take a look at the actions that the FAA did take in the last week, or, or the actions that Boeing itself took within the last week. So, first up, I, I think we have to discuss the new oversight at Boeing directed by the FAA, the, the most prominent of which I think is the strict cutting down of the production rate increase at Boeing and the not going to approve an additional line for the 7.3. And we know that Boeing was ramping up to open an additional line for the 7.3.7 outside of Renton for the first time ever up in Everett, where they manufactured 7.4.7s for decades. What does the future of, of production of the 7.3 look like? Do, do we think this is a temporary thing, or is this going to last for years? Like how does Boeing once again prove we are trustworthy, we can ramp up production once again? Well, how do you get to that answer?
2: Well, that's the hard part. When, you, when, you, when the trust has been violated, proving that you are worthy of trust again is incredibly challenging. And it takes time. And no one knows how long that's going to take. But I think one of the things that, you know, to kind of step back from sort of not just the FAA's essential role of ensuring air safety, but I think what we see here is the FAA and the US government cannot say to a publicly traded company, you need to have different leadership or you need to have a different strategy. But this is always the tension with Boeing. It is a public company that's not owned in any portion by the United States government, aside from the fact that they are their biggest customer. So within that, their options for saying you need to change are limited. But again, you see this like publicly traded private company that is also an asset, strategic asset of the United States of America. So you, you see this kind of playing out. And so what? where are, what does that mean? And, you know, if you sort of look at the chessboard, what the FAA is signaling is that number one, Boeing, you have to get your house in order operationally, but also by saying, no, you're not going to get your fourth production line in Everett until we're satisfied, that they are ultimately shifting the pain, I believe deliberately from what I understand in my reporting, to the customers and the shareholders. The two groups that Boeing listens to the most and cares about above all others. And so by capping the production rate at 38, 42 a month, I'm not really sure where it's going to land, probably closer to 42 because the wing part of Boeing's 737 production was already running at 42 and it was and it was actually pushing going through the, the pipe at final assembly, which was going at 38. So not sure what the cap is going to be monthly. But effectively, what we're saying is airlines are not going to get their airplanes as soon as they thought. And that's going to create a lot of very angry customers wanting things to change at Boeing. That's already happening and already happened, but this will reinforce it globally. On the other side of it is that Boeing's plan financially was to achieve a $10 billion free cash flow for investors in what that means is that that those10 billion dollars of annual free cash flow would be returned to investors as a, in a form of dividends, buybacks, ultimately, thank you for your investment as shareholders. This is the fruits of our labor. They were going to do that by significantly raising production. And probably we were going to see between 50 and 67,37 maxes per month rolling out of rent in by you know 2025, 2026 to achieve that. That's on hold. That's almost certainly not going to happen because the production ramp is flat and the cash is not going to come, at least certainly not when Boeing had promised it, but aside from the fact that they were not strategically set up to actually do that based on how they were have been performing. So what does that mean? It means you've got angry shareholders and you've got angry customers. And I think what that ultimately means is that that the FAA in its fundamental strategic inability to directly call for a leadership change in a new strategy is trying to apply pressure to those groups within the Boeing ecosystem to effectively do it for them
1: interesting so it's indirect pressure almost but everyone knows what they're actually trying to achieve there's no illusion here but i guess yeah they they the federal government can't exactly come out and say you need a new ceo it's not really its place but i want to shift in the minutes we have left to the max 7 and the max 10 what is the status of those? Because there's been some big changes in the last few days.
2: Yeah, so, so let's start with the Max Seven. So the Max Seven is I call it Southwest Regional Jet, <laughs> right? So they're smaller markets, and they can they can have that airplane to move around yeah. its its network. It's actually, that's probably not fair because their the range is considerably longer. But fundamentally, it's Southwest's small aircraft that was going to be the future of its next generation fleet. So the Southwest fleet was going to be MAX 7s, MAX 8s, 737 700s, which are increasingly going to be retired, and newer 737 800s. And that was going to be their fleet. And so the overwhelming majority of orders for the MAX 7 are for from Southwest and to a significantly lesser extent, Allegiant. And so what this ultimately means is that as the airplane was wrapping up certification, because it also had to jump through a, a lot of very necessary required hoops based on the certification reform act that went through at the end of 2020, that Boeing had to do a lot of additional documentation about things that changed on the airplane and to do design assurance and, and all these things that, that were not initially part of the expected certification. So over the course of 2023, early 2023, actually, Boeing sort of Became increasingly aware that they found through initially through analysis and then through validating flight tests that if you leave the engine anti ice, so this is hot air that's bled off of the CFM Leap 1B engine and then run through around the nacelle to to prevent ice buildup. If it's run too long under a certain set of conditions, which from our understanding is, you know, if it's run beyond five minutes in dry conditions that there is a a risk of overheating of the inlet and potential catastrophic damage to the engine, which would cause a a piece of the airplane potentially to separate, which is incredibly bad. Do not want that to happen. So Boeing said, okay, how are we going to mitigate this, number one, for the existing fleet of MAX 8s and MAX 9s? And in August, when Boeing publicly acknowledged that this was an issue with the FAA, FAA said, okay, the Airworthiness Directive says, Pilots would just flip off the, the system after five minutes in dry, in dry conditions, just to be sure. That's the mitigation. Okay. FA was happy with that. Fast forward to the end of the year and the MAX 7 was progressing toward final certification, but it became increasingly clear that Boeing would have to ask for what's called a TLE, a time-limited exemption from the requirement to fix this issue on the MAX 7 because it was non-conforming to regulations and that it would have to go ahead and make the fix, and it would have until the end of May of 2026 to do so, and it would make the fix for the existing fleet as well and the the, the MAX 7s. And on literally the morning of January 5th, the Seattle Times published a rather extensive article detailing sort of the thinking behind asking for this exemption. And talking to aviation experts who said this is not a sufficient mitigation and risk between here and when a fix would be available. Boeing should go ahead and just go and fix it. And the recommendation from these safety experts, among others, including labor unions, was that, yes, it has to be fixed, and it should be fixed for max 7 certification. Well, later that day, Alaska 1282 happened. And so immediately, the posture and climate and mood around Boeing getting a safety-specific exemption on the max of any ilk disappeared, and so in the days that followed, I spoke to a lot of you know senior executives at airlines and suppliers who said that's a, it's a non-starter. It's it's not going to happen. That FAA cannot approve this. That over you know a year before, at the end of 22, Boeing got an exemption to not have to do a comprehensive ICAS alerting system. By the way, the irony of that is that had they gone ahead and done the ICAS alerting system for the Max Seven and Ten, there would have been an alert in the cockpit to tell pilots to turn off the anti-ice.
1: I was waiting for you to mention that because this is an exemption <laughs> on top of an exemption. So not only do you not have a system that that notifies pilots oh. that hey, there's, there's something wrong here, turn this off. There's no notification at all that the anti-icing system is on when it probably shouldn't be and pilots just have to remember, hey, five minutes in dry conditions, and I don't know, the engine might explode. So I don't know, maybe do something about that. It's the double secret exemption. Exactly, yeah.
2: I mean, look, Boeing has spent so much time and so much energy pushing for exemptions that compound other problems later on down the road that rather than embracing the pain of just doing it, has ultimately created more problems and more time and more cost for themselves than it would have solved.
1: No one is better to, to speak to this than you, John, because you've been covering this forever. But did Boeing's customers put Boeing in this position? I mean, we all know that the American order of the the neo spurred Boeing to create the MAX. It, it was in a time crunch. So is it fair that we can just blame Boeing completely on this or is it just – circumstances this is where we ended up in, it, in the 73s beyond its useful life as an aircraft but we are where we are
2: well you're talking about episode 3 of the five part 75 item <laughs> documentary here right so i mean going back to the the launch of the max fundamentally was happened at a time when the 87 wasn't done yet incredibly expensive incandescently expensive effort the 47-8 was also not done yet and They needed a production system that got airplanes as quickly as they possibly could. And they already had one. They had the 737. And so they said, okay, we'll just keep going with that. We'll make a a comparatively limited investment in updating the MAX. And look, the the MAX, on many levels, it was absolutely the right choice because of the necessity for speed, the necessity for continuity, the necessity for every big leap of an airplane is – more expensive than the last one. So the technology wasn't ready to d- deliver that, but it was ready on the propulsion side. So they adapted it, right? I mean, in, in a lot of levels, it made made sense at the time. Hindsight is twenty twenty, um, but ultimately, Boeing has had to spend tens of billions of dollars to get the MAX to a point of stability because of that decision. And I count the penalties relating from the MAX crashes in that. Right, on top of the initial development costs and all that. And the new penalties that are that and compensation that's gonna have to go to, you know, compensating United and Alaska for their groundings and the additional penalties that are gonna come from this regulatory break, you know, the regulatory fallout from the Max 9 grounding. The bill for doing the Max the way they did it is enormous and will probably be on par with at least a few all new aircraft programs when it's all said and done, which is an amazing thing. But but fundamentally, is it the airlines who are to blame here in addition to Boeing? Yes, Boeing responds to its customers. Boeing ultimately has final say in what it does. You know, what we see is a pattern of deferral that I think is adding up and just creating more and more problems for Boeing. And that deferral makes it harder, oh, uh, you know, it's like, I'll work out tomorrow, right? too busy. I'll work out tomorrow, you know, the day after, right? And then you get up and work you're like, oh, that hurts, <laughs> right? I should have worked out today. And so it's that things that keep getting pushed along down the line that make sense in the moment, optimize for the short term. And they have missed opportunities again and again to begin to steer this in a way that begins to layer good decisions on top of each other rather than Decisions that create bigger disruption from smaller things. And that's a really important point here. Like go back to like 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, 11, during the eight, seven, you had like a wholesale breakdown of the supply chain and configuration control on eight, seven. It was a mess. It was an unbelievable, unmitigated mess for three years. And they went through the ramp up and it was incredibly expensive and incredibly challenging. And that was Big stuff, right? That was like multiple suppliers across, you know, all over the world with a global distributed supply chain, advanced technology, advanced manufacturing, uh, advanced systems, and caused big disruption. Fast forward, you know, 13 years, and we're talking about four bolts that causes the airplane to be grounded. And that sort of strategic instability is where we are today, where the smaller the item, the bigger the disruption, and it was a line of code for the Max crashes in 2018, 2019. So you have to look at the arc of where this company is going. Not just that there are big challenging problems with, with developing new something as amazing and as extraordinary and complex as a new commercial aircraft, but literally the nuts and bolts of what it means to be an aircraft manufacturer in the United States in, you know, January 2024. So that's where we're at right now strategically with Boeing, and I think that's what everyone is responding to. You know, but you'll hear from leaders likely from Boeing this week that, that you know a problem in the factory, and we need to address and reemphasize quality every single day and all that. It's not just a quality issue. Boeing is a systems engineering company, and right now the system that is Boeing is not operating in the way that they want it and the way they have it is producing results that are causing the machine to throw out some really bad results on safety, on quality, and certainly on financial results as a result of all that. But that tells you a lot about where things need to go in terms of how you actually begin to fix it. And part of that is not continuing to do the same things that you've been doing. And I think that's the thing that we're going to need to be watching for. And seeing how the stakeholders in the rest of the the Boeing ecosystem who want it to succeed—it's not like you're asking, like you know, the head of head of like Airbus marketing. Hey, what should Boeing do to to be better? Like that's not that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about airlines and and governments and suppliers who literally need them to be the best that they can be because, like I said, they are too big to fail.
0: And on that note. We're going to leave it there in anticipation of what happens tomorrow, the 31st of January, which is Boeing's earnings report. John, we're going to let you go so that you can rest up because I'm sure tomorrow is going to be a very busy day and we'll cover that on next week's show. John Ostrower is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Air Current, a publication who covers the industry in a way that I don't think anyone else does or can. And John, I want to thank you for being so gracious with your time and your expertise today and coming back on the program. John Oster, thanks so much. Thank you, John.
2: Thanks, gentlemen. My pleasure as always.
0: Welcome back. As always, John had extremely insightful commentary on where Boeing's at. I mean, he's been living and breathing Boeing for almost 20 years now, which is makes me feel old because we kind of came into the industry at the same time, but it's beside the point. Some updates on things that we talked about and questions that we had for John that we didn't really have answers for yesterday, but we now have answers for based on Boeing's fourth quarter of 2023 investor report today, their earnings report. So The question about the rate, because the wings were being produced faster than the airplanes themselves, the rate will stay at 38 airplanes per month. Boeing wanted to be between 50 and 60 aircraft per month
1: by mid-decade. That will not happen. Yeah. (laughs) Never say never, but it seems unlikely. Given the next piece of news, we will also – Yes. So, the other thing we talked about with John was the
0: anti ice engine nacelle issue, where Boeing had previously requested a time limited exemption for a known issue, saying that they would certify the 737 737 7 MAX and then retrofit a fix for it. They've withdrawn that TLE request. The FAA wasn't going to grant it given. Circumstances now. Boeing today said that it will take between 9 and 12 months to have that fix in place. So that puts 737 7 MAX certification into 2025. And the MAX 7 needs to be certified before the MAX 10 can be certified. So we don't know at this point. Aircraft are not going to be delivered on time to the customers. and That's a refrain that we've heard from Boeing before. On that note, we're going to play – I don't want to call it a game. It's not a game. We're going to do trivia here. We're going to pick quotes from Boeing's earnings, quarterly earnings calls, and we're going to decide what year those statements were made. Were they made today? or were they made in past quarterly earnings calls? And Jason,
1: your first statement, if you please. My first statement, and I quote, this is a defining moment for Boeing, and we remain focused on our enduring values of safety, quality, and integrity in all that we do as we work to safely return the 737 MAX to service. Ooh. I'm going to say Q3 2019. Oh, so close. Second quarter 2019. Uh That was Dennis Muhlenberg in, uh, yeah, second quarter 2019. Close one. That's impressive. All right. All right. We'll try our best. Okay. You want another one? Yeah. Give me another one. All right. We are progressing towards a safe return to service of the 737 MAX, and we are driving safety, quality, and operational excellence into all that we do every day. I'm going to say Q4 2020. Ooh! Right year, wrong quarter. First quarter uh, of 2020. Okay. It, it, it's okay. a trip to read this one. COVID's coming, and they're bunkering down for COVID. But all right, yeah, the seven three seven max. Fine at that time, but they're going to do quality excellence uh, every day or something.
0: I will give you one now. Okay. Quote, we won't predict timing. We
1: won't get ahead of our regulator. Ooh! Not much to go on there. I'm going to say that's third quarter 2022. That was today. No. That was today. Okay. I mean, there's not much to go on there. That could happen anytime. (laughs) You want to give me one more? All right. Here's another one. We've also taken action to further sharpen our company's focus on product and safety and services safety, and we continue to deliver on customer commitments and capture new opportunities with our values of safety, quality, and integrity always at the forefront. Hmm. That wasn't today. That That was not today. today. It was the third quarter of 2019. Okay. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these quotes, the common theme here is, we did bad and we're going to make it right by being safe and quality and integrity. A lot of these quotes could be repeated verbatim today.
0: Yeah, and they were. There are multiple sentences in today's earnings Call where they talk about safety
1: and quality and engineering excellence. And you made a good point about this before we started recording. What was it?
0: Well, my point was that our previous three minutes of podcast don't make sense if this had never happened before. Because if this had never happened before and Boeing said the exact same things, we would be having a very different conversation. We would be saying, Boeing is doing the right thing. They're taking responsibility. We can trust they are taking this seriously. We know that this organization is an organization that puts safety above all else, and they're going to do whatever it takes to ensure that this never happens again. And Not only does it never happen again, they come out of this better, and they come out of this smarter, and they come out of this in a way that ensures
1: the aircraft they build are the best aircraft in the world, yes, what was the line that was so common after the original grounding of the max that this will be the safest aircraft ever right. after the amount of mm-hmm. scrutiny put into it and the amount of time Boeing has poured into it that turned out to not be true at all as we 've seen they 're missing bolts to hold the doors on the aircraft, so that that 's fundamentally not what actually happened. However, there are some interesting changes in the tone from Boeing today. On the earnings call itself, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun said, I quote, I cannot comment on any specific root cause or speculate the root cause. As a participant in the process, I do believe the investigation will narrow quickly. He then went on to say, we caused the problem and we understand that. That does show a lot of growth, I think, at Boeing that they're able to say like, not really saying it, but saying, hey, we screwed up. This investigation is really quickly going to show that we did something bad and we, well, we screwed up. And then they actually said, we caused the problem and we understand that. That is not something Boeing was readily admitting during the MCAS debacle of 2019 through the early 2020s. This is a fundamentally different tone. I don't know how much stock I put into it. I don't know if Boeing's actually learned anything or if they're just a a wounded bear lashing out saying, oh, we've learned our lesson. We we caused this problem. We're going to be better. We've heard it all before. Now they actually have to do the hard part and deliver on that.
0: Yeah. We'll see what the preliminary report from the NTSB says. We'll see what Boeing does over the next weeks and months to regain the trust of its workforce, of its regulator, of the airline customers, and of the flying public, the road just keeps getting longer for them. And As we talked about with John, it short-term decision-making has hurt them more than the tough decisions about crafting a long-term vision for what the future of Boeing looks like would have in the first place. Let's move on from Boeing and talk about just some other things that have happened this week and other things that are worth keeping an eye on as the rest of the year unfolds because it's only the end of January. Uh, It's been a long year. Remember, Joel? That was this year. It was this month. I know. JetBlue is slowing the pace of deliveries because they don't need the aircraft yet because they don't have the airline in place to operate those aircraft. They're basically pausing their growth in light of everything that has happened to them in the last few months, including the the big, I don't know if it's a nail in a coffin so much as it's a gut punch that they can't merge with spirit. But it seems to me that that they're – they're putting a pause on their growth, and a big part of that is deferring aircraft well
1: into the end of the decade. What's wild about that to me is, is that at the same time they're deferring delivery of aircraft, they also have a, a wild number of aircraft grounded or expect to have aircraft grounded. Right. In JetBlue's earnings call this week, they have seven parked aircraft due to the Pratt and Whitney geared turbofan engine issues now. But by the end of the year, they expect to have thirteen to fifteen aircraft. Grounded. That's a lot of aircraft that they can't operate. And on top of that, they're deferring aircraft. This is not signs of a healthy airline. I really hope they can turn it around. Let's hope so. Ryanair is forecasting capacity slightly down in Europe this summer,
0: which is interesting in a microcosm, but makes sense kind of looking at it from the macro level. Ryanair is not saying its capacity is going to be down, but it's saying it's taking advantage of other airlines having less capacity and fares will be higher. What they're looking at is basically the same thing that everyone is looking at, and especially airlines operating Airbus A320 Neal family aircraft are looking at, and that's planes on the ground. Between delivery delays and the fact that the Pratt & Whitney engine issues will keep a sizable chunk of the the Airbus A320 family on the ground at least for a small period of time, if not longer, they're saying their capacity is going to be down this year and prices are going to be higher this summer. So, If you were planning on flying a
1: a low-cost airline in Europe this summer, you're going to be paying more. Yeah. and At the same time, uh, Ryanair just two days ago said it expects uh, the 737-10 to be certified by the end of this year and flying early next year they might want to rethink their plan. Maybe. Sure. Why not? Yeah, sure. In an alternate universe. I I don't know. But that is what we have learned in the last day shows that Ryanair, like uh, a couple other airlines, specifically United, they're going to have to rethink their fleet plan for the near term because that is not going to happen. I mean, I don't know if we talked about this, but United's already doing that.
0: Maybe. It's Reuters first reported- that Scott Kirby hopped a flight over to Toulouse and said, "Can we have a three twenty
1: one neo slots, please?" And then Ryanair um, said, "We'll we'll take any 73 three." And then said, "We'll take those uh, if they don't want. want." But don't read too much into it. Maybe Scott Kirby just wanted to go to the South of France in January because it's nice there. Who the doesn't? food is good. I mean, Who I doesn't? I'd go. Now that you mention it, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I don't know where they'd be getting those slots from, but hey, JetBlue just said, you know. We don't need as many, so maybe United will take them.
0: The idea, at least as Reuters was reporting it, was that because of that, Airbus went to other airlines and said, "You have delivery slots. Are you going to use those? Can, can we, we have done them, them with back? These or can we can have how them much? back? Can we talk? Can we talk? That'll be fascinating to see if anything comes of that." Also on the Airbus front, and if you don't want to fly a low-cost carrier to Europe or even between the US and Europe, you can now fly on a Beluga, assuming that you want to ship yourself and go that route. So Airbus built the Beluga to carry around Airbus parts similar to the Dreamlifter. Then they went and said, we need a bigger plane. so They built the Airbus Beluga XL, which is based on the A330. They still have the Beluga fleet, and they said why don't we make some money off of these and turned it into a cargo airline, outsized cargo airline. That outsized cargo airline function of Airbus now has approval to fly between Europe and the United States. So expect to see or hopefully you'll see
1: a Beluga at an airport near you. That'd be great. I don't know if those aircraft had ever crossed the Atlantic in their current form, at least. I don't think we ever thought that would happen. So, this is, this is great, especially now that the Antonov fleet, uh, the, the heavy lifters, is, is a little more difficult to get access to these days. The Beluga fleet is not a, as versatile. I don't think that you have to have a lot more- Less loading. weight. Yeah, yeah less, less
0: weight. weight needs specialized loading equipment and things like that. But- You know, but it's maybe worth it if you've got some helicopters to move or or something like that. Speaking of helicopters,
1: we've got some sad news. Oh, some news that was inevitable at some point. But it's happy news, I I think, because NASA JPL announced that after 72 flights, three years after its first flight, the Mars helicopter known as Ingenuity, unfortunately, seems to have some damage to one of its propellers and has taken its final flight. Uh, Keeping in mind, I say this is happy because this aircraft is experimental. It was only slated to operate five test flights over 30 days. But in typical NASA Mars-related nonsense, it lasted for 72 flights over three years because of course it did. It logged (laughs) two out, more than two hours of total flight time, flew 11 miles. And it turns out there aren't many airports on Mars, at least not right now. Huh? Yeah, weird, right? But where the Mars helicopter initially was based and was operating up and down from a stationary point was called Wright Brothers Field, because of course. But once they started at NASA to move the aircraft beyond that, it spread its wings, so to speak. They they named more airfields after it. And they started with the really creative name of Airfield B. And then they went to C, D, E, F, G, H, I, all the way to Airfield X, Y, and Z. And then they ran out of letters. And then they started using phonetic letters. So Airfield Beta and Gamma and Epsilon. And then they actually went into the Greek alphabet because they just kept running out of names for airports. And where the aircraft lies right now, where it will probably stay forever until a human comes there and accidentally steps on it, I don't know, is Airfield Chi, I think, C-H-I. So yeah, that's quite the story for that little rover. 72 flights, 128.8 flight time minutes. That's pretty impressive. There you go. Go Ingenuity. Yeah. I think the experiment was (laughs) successful. That's definitely a success. And this episode has been a success too. This has
0: been episode 253 of Av Talk. Thank you all very, very much for listening. And like we said at the beginning of the show, email us at podcastfi24.com with your stories of how you were influenced in aviation. We would love to hear your stories. We would also love to hear your suggestions for, for future episodes, comments, criticisms, what have you. Just send us an email and wherever you listen to this podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is most of you, or Spotify, which is some of you, or wherever else you listen to the show, leave us a rating or review. and That really helps other people find the show. and That can be their story about how they became app geeks. They read a review of the podcast and they said, I'm going to listen to it and it can be all your fault that they're now stuck listening to us. What an origin story. This has been episode 253 of Av Talk. I am Ian Pechnik
1: here as always with Jason Repenowitz. Thanks for listening.